welcome to the Better Birth Podcast with Erin Fung, hypnobirthing instructor. Join me as I talk to industry experts about all things birth, pregnancy and beyond. Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. Today I'm talking to Charlie, who is a doula. Um, and part of the Good Birth Practice. Welcome, Charlie. Hello, Erin. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I guess so. So I work with uh, two people who've already been on your podcast list. So I work with Laura Scarlett and with Ruth Pay. And um, yeah, we doula, so we work with women through their pregnancies and through their births, and I teach hypnobirthing as well. Um, Laura and Ruth both offer postnatal doula support, so we can kind of carry you all the way through. Um, and I am also at the moment doing an MA at the Centre for Women's Studies at York University, um, and that uh, MA is a piece of research into uh, women and decision making and choices in the intrapartum period. So that, so that's um, that's when you are labouring with your child. So you know the, the last, you know that last bit of pregnancy as you mm-hmm. start to feel like you're entering labour and then through labour and into birth. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so that's what I do. Oh, I think it's So you, what, what made you choose that as a topic for your, for your MA, for your research? Um, so I have been, well, God, it got, I mean, it goes all the way back. I think if you, ta- if you talk to any birth practitioner, any birth worker, um, particularly holistic birth workers, they're usually motivated by their personal experiences of birth. Um, and when I was pregnant with my first child, I'd been working in marketing and advertising for a couple of years. I was in my mid thirties and um, I was very happy to be pregnant, but absolutely terrified of birth. Absolutely, like properly terrified about what was going to happen Um, and I didn't really know what I was scared of but I knew that I was like scared in my bones about it Um, and I somebody had recommended that I do a hypnobirthing course and I did do a hypnobirthing course and I ended up having a really positive home birth I mean really really positive home birth like by the time when I had this child I was actually euphoric for about three weeks afterwards possibly for a year because I just could not believe that I'd made a human and given birth to this human and everything had gone smoothly um and then between the first child and the second child I did a a course into in counseling and hypnotherapy course because I because I kind of wanted to bring that experience to other people I was like Jesus you know if I can go from terrified to home birth anybody can do it like I'm a chump if I can do it anyone can do this you just need to do in a very kind of um, (laughs) you know in a very kind of control freaky way if you just kind of follow these steps this is what will happen Um, and then I had my second child and um, and I was just doing sort of, uh, I was teaching sort of hypnobirthing classes one-to-one kind of on, a, on and off because, you know, having children is a bit overwhelming. And all the way through, um, what really was, what I was really conscious of was that 
and it, I guess it made me reticent as a teacher of hypnobirthing was there must be something other than this that makes birth good. What is it? What are those factors? Um, and in 2014, I'm looking behind me because I've left the book on the shelf. In 2014, I found a book called, um, uh, it's called A Good Birth. And it's by an American obstetrician called Anne Drapkin Liley. And she wrote, uh, th th this book is a really interesting book. It's, a, it's, a, it's partly research and partly anecdote and partly kind of an academic. In fact, I think it might have been a PhD paper that she turned into a book but it's really really interesting uh, and it's a piece of research she did with Duke University in North Carolina and uh, the, her objective was to identify what the correlating factors for good birth were and her, her findings are that good birth is not about how the baby comes out of your body you know we have this very fixed idea that a, a good birth I'm doing like the bunny ears oh. on podcast um works brilliantly on podcast that um you know the idea of a good birth is you know no drugs spontaneous labor vaginal delivery no stitches um ideally at home you know there's this, this is very powerful trope that home birth is really important and we and what happens is that that uh that birth then gets polarized right to you know you know, there's the crunchy lentil weaving yogurt drinking home birthy whale music sage burning tree huggy crowd right and then there's the two posh to push turn up at hospital whack an epidural in i don't want to know disembodied kind of thing and and actually neither of those things are true but that that becomes the caricature of it anyway in her book she finds it and i'm now not going to remember what the six factors are because i can never remember them but she identifies these six factors which are actually contextual and emotional and it's about control agency knowledge trust power that's five um the sixth i can't remember but i'll well, maybe i'll put it in the maybe i'll put it in the comments or something um and i was like oh yeah look there we go that's what it is that's what makes birth good it's about and at the time i didn't have the vocabulary for it but that but now i think that what it is is it's about being able to birth in your milieu you know, it's about being able to give birth in the environment that feels right to you. And the challenge for that often is, oh, yeah, but, you know, birth is dangerous. It's risky. Well, part of what makes you feel safe, part of what makes you feel confident is being able to make your own informed risk assessment. And one of the challenges that we have in the UK is that this overwhelming hegemonic belief that birth but the, it, it, what I was going to say is that birth equals risk, but but what it is is it's a pathologization. It's a of women's bodies and birth, and that that pathologizing of women's bodies starts very young. So it is very hard for us to unpeel it from our belief structures. And actually, for most women, for a lot of women what we do is we learn about our we learn a tiny little bit about our fertility and our reproductive organs and how our bodies work tiny little bit not properly not in depth but a little bit in gcse biology and that is contextualized in don't get pregnant because it will be dreadful for you you know it's painful it will ruin your body it will ruin your career don't do it and then we spend another 10 15 years taking synthetic hormones or using 
all sorts of contraceptive devices that in often interfere with how our bodies flow so we're disrupting so we're disassociating ourselves from the natural cycles of our bodies mm -hmm. until we get to a point that we decide we want to get pregnant um, and we're so used to controlling our bodies at that point that fertility can be really frustrating because we're not used to the idea that we can't control our bodies um, and then actually you have a very 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 short time to learn about how your body works in birth like yeah. I mean if I'm being generous 40 weeks but the reality of it is you might not know you're pregnant for the first couple of weeks and then nobody really wants to do anything until 12 weeks just in case and then really it, you know if you're working with a good birth practitioner they'll say to you just wait for your 20 week scan because that's the reassuring scan we don't want to you know, from my point of view, I know that 20 week scans aren't always positive. So it's better to wait to get that bad boy yeah. out of the door before we move on to anything else. So really you've got 20 weeks, which is nothing to acquire this huge volume of knowledge, not only about how your body works, but also about how the systems work and how the institutions are structured and about the pros and cons of various things. You, your partner might be with you on that journey but your partner might also not be it might you know from you know I you know taking my husband to antenatal classes was a little bit like taking a dog to the vet you know he like he came because he kind of knew he had to but you know <laughs> you know willing is a bit strong <laughs> you know so uh, and it's happening in an environment where your body is changing, your hormones are all over the place. It has implications to your relationship with your partner, has implications to your relationship with your parents and your partner's parents if they're around. And you, your sense of yourself changes, the, how the world sees you changes. You know, it's this rapid acquisition of knowledge in this dramatically shifting environment. And then we're surprised when women don't have great birth experiences. It's, I mean, obviously women aren't having great birth experiences. The environment that we, that we have put together for women to have their babies in is crap. <laughs> so it's not really a surprise. And so I, I guess that I'd been, like, how many minutes are we now after you ask that question? Like, I'm like, <laughs> the longest man. Um, but I guess to refer back to your original question, which everybody has now probably forgotten, which was, why did I decide to focus on this area for my MA? And um, actually, over time, that became clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer to me. Um, and at the same time, I became aware of this dissonance where we have this very strong kind of neoliberal Western uh, notion that is packaged as feminism, which says you are an autonomous human being and you have a right to make choices and your rights to make choices in birth are as strong as they are anywhere else you are you can realize yourself in any way you wish to but the truth of it is that that's not how it works in practice and so for a long time I felt this uh discomfort about my my teaching of hypnobirthing where I don't want to say to people actually all you have to do is learn how to breathe and you know remember the brains acronym and write a really watertight birth plan yeah. because I know that that's not enough to carry you through right. and actually 
there are lots of other things that you need to know about as well and those things are dynamic they're not fixed you know you need to be prepared to be agile and be prepared to make compromises and sacrifices that you didn't think you were going to be prepared to make mm. um and we're not uh, and also i think we need to be honest with women that often uh, not just with women but also with the institutions of birth that women often feel coerced and that because they're vulnerable, they're not able to say, we don't have the vocabulary. It's like, uh, you know, it's like being in an abusive relationship. You know, why do women stay in abusive relationships for so long? Because they don't always realise quite how abusive those relationships are. You know, why do women in labour put up with some of the treatment that I've witnessed as a doula? Well, they do it because they don't realise that they don't have to put up with it because the, this whole sort of systemic institutional uh weight on women is you know birth is dangerous your body is not going to work you have to be a good girl mm. if you don't behave well you can't rely on the treatment that you're going to get mm. and it's um and it's complicated it's not straightforward mm. so uh, you know so so that's why I decided that that's why I kind of ended up in that area for my research project, for my research dissertation for this MA. Um, I still stand by hypnobirthing. I think it's brilliant. And I wish I wish that it didn't come with such. Um, uh, there's a, there's that really potent stigma around hypnobirthing, isn't it? You know, that you're a hippie or that you're naive or that. Um, or that you're controlling or precious or you know mm. all of those other really unpleasant yeah. um, things that we ascribe to women who have mm. the temerity to not want to have a shitty birth experience um so but i so i still think hypnobirthing is is fantastic and i and i still i still share that kind of knowledge with couples that i work with because yeah. because i think it's a great starting point yeah. you know no situation was ever made worse by knowing how to control your breath all right so it's a that is a great starting point um but i also think that there's a lot more to know and it's um and have you know i'm really fortunate that i've been able to to, to pick up this ma because it's given me the time to really think about to really think about some of the things that i've seen and discussed with other doulas and other hypnobirthing practitioners over time and I kind of, I can't, you know, like, um, I want that to make a difference. I want, I want to be able to be honest with women and say, because this is the other thing that I think happens is I, I think that we make women unduly responsible for the path of their labours. And that's one of the reasons that, that women feel nervous about committing money to hypnobirthing and doulas, because in the back of their mind is, well, shit, this is going to cost a fortune or it's going to take up loads of my time. What if, you know, what if it still goes horribly wrong? What if I'm still traumatised? Mm. And the reason they're having those thoughts is because we make women responsible for that. You know, we say to them, it's your responsibility to do NCT or it's your responsibility to prepare to be physically fit and physically healthy and to have done all the reading and spent the money on the classes. Mm. And it is, you know, if you're going to have a baby, then you know like learn about it the the information is there it's not up to anybody to necessarily to spoon feed it to you although i do think that we have a responsibility to adequately prepare women because motherhood matters you know 
being a mother matters, having children matters. Um, but the truth of it is you're not the only person in the room when you have a baby, right? Yeah. And all sorts of things can influence the path of your birth. You know, there will be different people who are there on the day. Those people are being influenced by other things that are happening around them. Mm. As we know from the Ockenden report and the various other reports into East Kent and, um, and other places in the country, we know that institutions have top-down structures and that those top-down structures will influence the way people behave and speak to each other on the ground. But it's not just about doctors and midwives either. It's about, you know, your extended family and the culture we have yeah. around birth, but also around women. You know, the culture we have around women is is really, really unhealthy. Like if you, if you like go right back to uh, what we're taught about in sex education classes when we're in school, we are taught that boys are virile and active and predatory mm. and that women are passive and vulnerable and and troublesome that women's bodies are troublesome you know women's bodies need managing because without management they are wild and out of control you know and and that you know that comes from that comes from what we learn about uh, fertility you know the, the when we learn in schools about how women get pregnant it's it's the woman's responsibility you know all the sperm but you know sperm turns up but it's the woman's body that gets pregnant right the sperm is all, almost a, you know like it's almost a it's almost a third party in the event really isn't it it's the thing that's happening to women but also if you step outside of education again and you think about what we say to teenage girls and the stigma around periods and uh the cultural stigma around women's bodies that you know you need to shave your body i mean like one of my oh god that whole thing around scented panty liners and uh you know feminine pro products in that aisle in the supermarket just uh, it actually it, i get like this visceral physical reaction to it because what we're telling girls is it's not just it's not just all those dirty snarky jokes about you know what women's bodies smell like and what they taste like and the fact that we ooze fluids and periods are disgusting and you know menstrual blood is disgusting and all that kind of stuff i mean that that would be bad enough if it was that cultural stuff but you, but then you go into a supermarket <laughs> you know where you buy your food so you're kind of trusting these guys and yeah. they're you know they're listing products which adds to that belief that women's bodies aren't functioning. There's nothing wrong with your vagina or your vulva. You know, it operates perfectly well. <laughs> Thank you. It doesn't need to be scented yeah. <laughs> in any way or cleaned or have anything else inside it. It does its job perfectly well. Thank you. So that, that kind of pathologizing of women's bodies starts very, very early on yeah. and feeds into this thing about you know, it feeds into that belief that we have that birth will go wrong, that our bodies won't work properly and that they require intervention. And, uh, you know, that is really unhealthy. Mm. Yeah. And it's unhealthy because there's not balance, you know, like I, like I, I, birth doesn't always go according to plan. You know, birth is unpredictable for all sorts of reasons. You know, like I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not this, I'm not an adherent of the view that, you know, all birth is beautiful and straightforward and perfect. And all, all you have to do is create the right environment and birth happens. You know, it, 
you know, uh, humans are messy and chaotic creatures and we, like, we don't always know. We don't always know why things happen the way they do. Um, but it's imbalance. It's the imbalance that I find frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, against the pathology, we don't have anything really mm. uh, that says actually birth is fine and it's good. We're more so now with social media I, I think it's easier to find those sorts of images now and those sorts of narratives and stories but um but they don't have the same cultural weight as this uh, sort of structural notion of yeah. you know. I think that and that's I think that's quite difficult it's it's well it was obviously very diff very difficult because we haven't managed to address it but mm. you know that kind of tipping tipping that balance I think is really hard because it is a snowball effect isn't it you know the fact that you know your own mother probably has had a negative birth experience or and your aunties and your female relatives you know that's that's the narrative that you get exposed to and that's what you hear about mm -hmm. and that's what you then believe despite you know all of the 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 negative stories that we get exposed to in the media or you know everywhere else it's our own lived experiences from our own families yeah. and that's that's very hard to kind of you know unpick and and to not have that it's bound to influence your own beliefs yeah. and opinions well it's that constant tension isn't it between you know do we tell as as holistic birth practitioners do we tell women what birth is or what birth could be mm. and you know i'm i'm much better at that now i i used to find that very difficult because because i used to get caught up in the thing where i don't want to scare people i don't want to i don't want to make them nervous or anxious mm. i what i think now is that knowledge is power and there is no such thing as the perfect birth environment you know when you're when you're planning when you're writing your birth plan you will always be making a series of compromises you know when you decide i want a home birth rather than a hospital birth it's not that home birth is the perfect environment it's just that for you as an individual it looks like a better deal than hospital you will have to be making some compromises because there will be some areas where hospital is better than home but what you're doing is you're you're uh it's what it's what's known as in an ideal clinical environment it's what's known as shared decision making where you take on board you know the clinical factors the clinical advice and guidance which is you know based on the science capital t capital s right the science uh, but you are also able to weave that into your own values and preferences um, and that's how you and that's how you women are able to make good decisions about what where they have their babies and who are present with them and what happens in the course of that labor and actually that's a that is a constant frustration for me when I'm working with women who are going through the NHS is that you know I can't think of the last time I worked with a client who didn't at some point come up against somebody who said you can't do what you want to do because of x y or z factor and I actually think that's fair enough because I think you know that's their job as midwives and consultants and clinicians you know their job is to say oh do you know what actually this looks a bit risky this starts to elevate 
your risk factors it was it's making us feel a bit more concerned than we were last time we saw you and this is why my frustration is that you can't have that conversation which should in my view be completed by and how can we help you have the birth that's right for you yeah because actually those that that should be the natural arc of that conversation you know we've taken your blood pressure or we've done a scan or your urine test tells us or you know any of the myriad bloody factors that pop up between 37 and 37 weeks pregnancy and birth and they do and that's another really frustrating thing about working with people as a hypnobirthing practitioner is because often by 37 weeks you're not in contact with them regularly anymore you've done all of your work then and actually it's at 37 weeks when those you know follow-on scans and all that kind of stuff that's when this cascade of intervention starts yes. is that actually you ought to be able to have that conversation and go oh, okay i'll take that on board thank you very much now what do we do in a way that feels comfortable for me and what often happens is actually then the then everything shuts down right we've identified this risk factor and because of this risk factor you have to do da -da 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 -da, and that then drives this huge wedge and it starts to diminish trust and women start to feel that they're on a they're kind of on a conveyor belt that they're not any longer active autonomous players mm. uh, in what's going on actually they're just they're either conformist or non-conformist and if they're conformist everything's okay and everyone's happy except the, except the woman <laughs> and if they're non-conformist then actually they just have a fight on their hands and that's that's just very draining and and very difficult yeah. Yeah. um which kind of brings me back to that, you know, that's that's uh, that's sort of the focus of my dissertation is that dissonance between saying to women and everybody says it, you know, it's not just hypnobirthing practitioners and doulas, it's hypnobirthing practitioners, it's doulas, it's NCT, it's midwives, it's the NHS website, it's Public Health England, it's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, it's the Royal College of Midwives, you know, everybody is saying women should have choice. The World Health Organization talks about it's got a really rich weighty page about you know the choices that women should be given in labor and blah 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 but the truth of it is actually once you turn up at triage really where you are there is consent or decline you're not actually making active choices it's more about uh yes i accept what you're telling me and i'll do it or no i don't accept and therefore we're going to be in a bit of a bun fight mm. and, and what often happens if you decline is you then embark on this quite complex dynamic where i'm you know doing the bunny ears again like they are trying to get you to do what they want and need you to do and you are trying everything to not do that and it becomes this ridiculous kind of unspoken mad ballet thing but yeah. what you're very rarely able to do is to turn up and say i really want to get in the water or i want to have the lights off or you know i i, I don't want anyone in the room until i ask it it's it's very rarely actually um women who are really calling the shots who are able to recreate an environment that feels very comfortable for them um so yeah so we are always torn between you know what do we tell people as 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 uh, sort of antenatal teachers and hypnobirthing practitioners and doulas you know do we tell them the truth or do we tell them what it can be because it's like we know that it doesn't have to be like that yeah. right 
it's not like that everywhere in the world it's not like that everywhere in the uk it's not like that with every birth yeah you know, I, was at, I was at a beautiful birth before christmas lovely 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 home birth and it was this um it was my client's second baby and i'd been there when she had her first baby as well and those births were so different like they were so different yeah. i cannot tell you and afterwards we were sitting in her sitting under the christmas tree it was just before christmas sitting under the christmas tree with a new baby having a chat and a cup of tea and reflecting on how brilliant she was and you know how incredible it was um and we were just thinking about all of the different factors that stacked up you know what like when it, it's a little bit like sliding doors you know if if this hadn't happened at this stage and that hadn't happened at that stage and this hadn't happened here and all of these things stacked up to her having what she described at the time you know she she was happy with that first birth she, you know it wasn't like it wasn't textbook but she was happy with it mm. having had the second baby she was like oh my god that was amazing like why on why why isn't everybody doing this mm. and uh you know it's about uh it's about how the institutions operate and it's about uh it's about the difference between home birth and hospital birth mm. um and also some little bits of serendipity that happen on the day that you can't control because that's also life right you know yeah. there are little bits of that as well so okay. yeah um, i think he i think he uh, you know you say you were saying about whether we you know the, the, the two the two sides of you know do we tell them what it's really like or what it can be like and I think, I think you're right. I think that my 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 struggle is even telling them um, e either of those two truths mm -hmm. and those stories, um, and telling them you know the choice is yours, and you know you are in the driving seat, and legally you are in the driving seat. And even if somebody knows they're in the driving seat, mm -hmm. that conditioning that we've had and having that confidence to make those decisions I think is really really hard and I think you know there's there's so much more work that needs to be done outside of the systems and outside of the structures to to, to really genuinely empower people to, or people to to make those decisions because it is hard you know if you're I mean I've done it myself I you know with my second I had a doula there um, and I knew all my choices my 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 waters went and my contractions didn't start and uh, I, I chose to go into hospital and um, to get checked and they really really tried to coerce me into having an IV of antibiotics which I didn't want um, and an induction which I didn't want and I mean luckily I did have my dealer there because genuinely I probably would have just given in not consent I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word consent because I don't think I would have been consenting I would have given in and not had the confidence to put up that fight and say no um and having that dealer there really really helped to kind of you know embolden me to to say no um even when they you know used the dead baby card on me which they did um you know uh, I still said no I'm going to go home you know I know what the nice guidelines are I know I'm and I'm I'm capable of making the, that assessment of risk and I'm happy to go home not have the antibiotics and not have the induction but I do think making those decisions is really, really hard. Um, yeah, it is because you don't know what the outcome is going to be, and you know, uh, it's it's really challenging because the reason that that dead baby card gets played is because babies do die, mm. you know, and and 
that's catastrophic for everybody you know it's catastrophic for the family it's catastrophic for the midwives you know I have a I have a lot of friends who are midwives and a, a friend of mine who is a midwife was um, in a situation a couple of years ago where the baby died mm. and actually in that scenario it was nothing it wasn't anything to do with her care actually it was a pre-existing condition mm. um, which was known about so it sort of everybody was expecting it just happened in a slightly different way than anybody had expected and it's you know that's catastrophic for an individual who has clinical responsibility, even in a scenario where that baby wasn't ever going to survive, yeah. there was only ever going to be one outcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nobody wants that to happen. It's a challenge, isn't it, about whether Millie Hill writes about this in um, Give Birth Like a Feminist, you know, are women infantilized you know are we a, are, can we be trusted to make decisions together and the difficulty with the scenario that you're describing which i've you know you know i've been present for as a doula but i've also kind of walked that path with women you know as they're kind of going through that process um the difficulty with that is that what it does is it backs everybody into a corner you know yeah. clinicians Clinicians have to do that because they have to tell you what the risks are. Yeah. What they don't have to do is they don't have to coerce you. They have to yeah. give you all of the information so that you can make your own decision about that. Yeah. But it's very, very hard. And the, the thing about it is that there is no such thing as a right or wrong. There is no such thing as a right or wrong answer because yeah. you don't, and unless you have overwhelming clinical evidence, yeah gives you a really good idea that actually this is telling us that this is likely to happen next and therefore we need to act mm. and I've been present where that conversation has been had as well and I can tell you now that that is a very you know that is not a coercive conversation that sounds very different yeah. um, and it and it degrades trust because women know that they're being coerced they just haven't got the vocabulary to call it out mm. they haven't got the vocabulary to say please don't do that i just want to have a straightforward yeah. conversation with you but we also have to be realistic about the conditions that midwives are working in mm. there are not enough midwives they are not paid enough they are working too many hours they have too many they have too many women on their caseloads, whether they're in community or in hospitals. They are not adequately supported by the NHS. I know the RCM does the absolute best it can, but it's very hard to deliver compassionate care when you are not working in a compassionate environment. Yeah. You know, so there are, you know, this real confluence of factors around that. Um, and the other thing I think is really important, slightly tangential, is that the decision that you think you were going to make is not necessarily the decision that you end up making on the day and mm. that's okay and and i and i guess that kind of brings me back to this idea about making women unduly responsible for what happens mm. you know i work with a lot of women who either as a result of a previous birth or the pregnancy that i'm working with them in will say afterwards if only i had said this or done that if only i'd been stronger if only i'd held out more yeah. and actually women laboring women are vulnerable mm. you know and they they should be protected they shouldn't be in this scenario where they're feeling that they have to uh, that they have to look out for themselves and they have to be on alert and watchful and engaging in negotiation you know we shouldn't be doing that yeah. and i i slightly think that 
you when we were talking before you were saying i wish everyone could have a doula um and and that's why i think that everybody should have a doula as an advocate as anything else you know as as like a third party a, a non-clinical third party who's able to be there to say oh hang on a second you know is that really and i guess that, uh, you know you again before we were chatting we were talking about uh, laura and ruth are my colleagues and um I was saying that uh, the three of us, we each have a slightly different strength. We each have a slightly different perspective on birth. And I, I think, you know, my strength is about walking, it, it, you know, it's less about rebozos and spinning babies and, mm. you know, the mild circuits and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm not, uh, you know, Laura and Ruth are both fantastic on uh, knowledge, fantastically knowledgeable about physiological birth and how you can facilitate that brilliantly. But I guess I'm really, watchful of how women are being spoken to and like how can you navigate that how can you negotiate that how can you get to a position where you feel comfortable and how can you release control yeah you know, all too often we're saying to women uh, you know you need to ask that question you need to do this you need to do that actually i think a really great really great question to ask is how can you help me to have the birth that i want yeah it's completely disarming and it changes mm. it, it completely shifts what's going on with your birth and it puts the responsibility straight back onto your midwives and your clinicians and it stops the argument about you know should you should you have an artificial rupture of membranes or not should you have a sweep or not should you be induced or not it's it, it takes you away from that argument because we know that those are not really the things that contribute to whether yeah. birth feels good or not mm. I mean, obviously they contribute to it because if you have a, you know, if you have an induction or you have an epidural, we know that that increases the likelihood of, you know, various other factors in your birth. But so, you know, we can be honest about that. But we also know that actually the things that contribute to you reflecting on whether your birth was a positive experience or not are actually much more about your rapport with the people around you, whether you felt you were in you were in control and it's that funny balance isn't it about you know having enough control to release control you know uh did you trust the people who are around you in the decisions that were being made and actually asking that question just shifts the shifts the boundaries again mm. you know and, and it makes them more responsible so so yeah i think there's a lot going on even in even in relatively straightforward pregnancies low risk pregnancies there yeah. are and, and actually I think increasingly since I've had my first child 10 years ago I, I see this uh uh this kind of late identification of, of risk factors has yeah. become more and more frequent for more and more women and that you know that makes that last couple of weeks really difficult and it's exactly the last time yeah. when you're you're able to properly address that yeah. particularly if you've you know particularly if you've had a doula and you've done hypnobirthing and nct and you're feeling really confident and like you know you've got really good birth plan in place and then all of a sudden everything you know everything starts to shift and you're a bit like whoa yeah where do we go from here it's difficult it's challenging yeah yeah oh i could talk to you all day you're so, <laughs> you're, you're so amazing honestly and you're so knowledgeable about you know you're just you're amazing. I it's very generous of to say to talk with me because I've basically just talked at you. For <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Honestly, I thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on the podcast because um, it's, it's, so, it's so every time I record a podcast, 
episode I'm like I want to publish it now because it's so good <laughs> and now I'm like I want to publish it now <laughs> well, as you've probably identified I could talk about this for hours so it's sort of lovely to have a little Friday night out there having spent all day doing like KS2 maths and KS1 English it's quite <laughs> talk about my specialist subject <laughs> yeah I think I don't know maybe birth maybe talking about birth is easier than talking about yeah uh, arrays and um was it what was my 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 daughter was doing bus bus stop division yeah listen don't talk to me about don't Thank like you. you know like year three i'm out of maths already it's not it's not my area of strength i was saying to the children say one of them was complaining to me why do we have to do this and i said because it will enable you to get a job where you don't have to do it anymore <laughs> like it's just jumping through hoops if you just do this maths now you have a job that I, that you enjoy as much as I enjoy mine. I never have to do long division, so we're all good here. <laughs> and you can use a calculator for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> oh well, good luck with your um your studies. And are you going to publish your your paper when it's done, when it's yes. finished? I am. It's mm. long. It's going to be. It's thirty thousand words. So that wow. felt. Yeah, I know. It felt very daunting when I started. I was like, oh my God, I can't write 30,000 words. Now I'm like, oh my God, 30,000 isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will be, I'll be touting it round eventually and boring everyone with it hugely. <laughs> oh, you won't be boring anyone. I'll be reading it, definitely. I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. So it's, yeah, I'm so interested. Thank, thank you so much, Charlie. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. I'll speak to you soon, Marie. Bye. The Better Birth podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung.